If you listened to secular media, you'd think that the Synod of Bishops is only dealing with issues of divorce and homosexuality. But that's not the case. Those are two of many issues that affect marriage and family. One of the topics that is of interest of me is that of the concept of natural law. Not sure if you've ever heard that term, but quite often it's used to explain or justify the way things should be according to the church. It was St. Thomas Aquinas who came up with the term, and it simply means that God's eternal law, that is, the way things are meant to be, is inscribed in our human heart, and that we participate in God's eternal law through free will. That is natural law. But I don't know about you. I find that a bit hard to understand. Sometimes, natural law is described as merely common sense, or as what's in your heart, which I guess is true, but in reality, what's common sense for someone is not for someone else, or what's in my heart is not necessarily what's in your heart. And this is especially when it comes to issues of what's right and wrong. So for all out there who are confused about natural law, here is my definition. Natural law is the law that says that everything works best or yields the best results when used according to its nature. So that means that when you use something according to its nature, it will work best or yield the best results. If I want the best tomatoes, I have to use the tomato plant according to its nature. The same applies to everything, including marriage and sexuality. If you want your marriage to work best and yield the best results, well, then use marriage according to its nature as designed by God. So how do we know the nature of marriage? Well, we see under what circumstances it works best and yields the best results. Simple. I am a firm believer that we can put anything through the natural law test and find out what God's design is. And I guess we'll find out what God has inscribed in our hearts. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is the Salt and Light Hour. Hello and welcome to an all-new Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Let me begin by reminding you that all during the month of October, we're offering a special 20% discount code for the wonderful new resource, The Church Alive, that we featured a few weeks ago. This is 13 half hours that are perfect for a parish study group or any study group. If you want to learn the key themes of the Second Vatican Council or you want to deepen your faith and knowledge of Catholicism, well then get the church alive. If you're a priest, don't delay. This is a great offer. If you're not a priest, go tell your pastor because this is great for your parish. For the month of October, you can get all 13 episodes for just under $60. Just go to our online store at saltandlighttv.org and use the discount code ALIVE20. ALIVE and the number 20. You won't regret this. To learn more about The Church Alive, go to saltandlighttv.org slash thechurchalive. And I'm very excited about our show today. First off, after our news and Saint of the Week, Sebastian Gomes will give us an update from the Synod in Rome that's in about 25 minutes. And have you noticed that Pope Francis is the Pope who's spoken about the devil more than any other Pope? I bet you didn't notice. But ever wonder what exactly does the Church teach about Satan, about evil, and about exorcisms? Well, stick around, because in our second half hour, we will be speaking with Matt Baglio, author of The Right. 
And after that, we'll be speaking with singer-songwriter Tony Melendez. Tony was born without arms and plays guitar with his feet, and we're very happy to have him back on the program. So let's start with a song. Here's Tony Melendez with Everybody Sing Alleluia from his album, Hands in Heaven. Everybody sing Alleluia. Everybody praise his name. Everybody sing Alleluia. Praise his name. with Everybody Sing Alleluia from his album Hands in Heaven and we're going to be speaking with Tony in our second half hour but now here is Alicia with our news now Alicia yes so if you listen to non-Catholic news secular news all you're hearing is about the two topics the two issues in the synod 
church opens divorce, to gays and yes, divorced and, yeah, Catholics. Exactly. Yes. So what's really happening? Why is the secular media getting that message? And maybe explain all that for us. <laughs> so to put it very like succinctly and maybe a little bit cynically, Pedro, basically this is all par for the course at a synod. There's yeah. always this like midterm report this relatio post discussionem deceptionem whatever but it's different because everybody seems to be paying attention to this that's exactly what i was about to say everybody's paying attention for almost the first time at a synod they're actually paying attention to what's being said and getting really excited so this midterm report let's call it because i can't repeat the latin name um it's really supposed to be a summary of what's been discussed up until now Mm -hmm. what are the key topics that have come up and what are the main points that have been made about those key topics so it's not a um as someone said it's not a prescriptive document it's not this is what we're going to do from now on it's not an order it's not an official here's what we're going to do next it's not a proposal it's not a conclusion it's not even something that all of the Synod Fathers agree on necessarily. It's not even a draft. Well, that's all it is, really. It's kind of, it's, it's a, a working, summary. it's a draft yeah. of a summary of what's been discussed. Yes. And not everybody has to agree on it because that's not the point of yep. this document. It's like minutes. Yes. But what happens with this document, it then gets, it's given out to all of the Synod participants and mm. they start working in small groups. And the idea is kind of like, you've been saying all this stuff, and now here's the mirror, and I'll show you what you've been saying. Right. So oftentimes in the Synod, people are talking, they're getting up, they're giving interventions, and you might remember what you said, or you might remember what one specific person said because their intervention really grabbed you. Mm -hmm. But participants don't often have that look to step back and actually say, hey, this is actually everything we were talking about. Right. So that's kind of what this document is. So they're given now this document mm-hmm. in their small groups and they go through it piece by piece. Right. And in these small working groups, they reflect on it, they discuss more, and this is where they start making proposals. Okay. Because at the end of the synod, they do have to present a document to the Holy Father. This mm-hmm. is what we came up with. These are the things we agreed on. These are the things we would like to see happen. These are the suggestions we have for you. Uh-huh. This is what we are. But to get to that point, there's a lot of debate in these small groups, a lot of evaluating, a lot of even fine tuning of language. Sometimes Uh it's as simple as tweaking the language that's being used. Right. Now, in this case, this synod is really part one of two. Exactly. So it's not even. Exactly. So the document yes. that gets put out at the end of this synod won't even be a definitive no, document. It's the working document for the next exactly, synod. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So it's a long process. It's yes. just that nobody's really ever paid attention this in so closely, I should say. Yes. Nobody's ever paid so close attention to a synod from outside of the Catholic world. Right. And because they don't know what a synod really is is and does and looks like and how it works. And because these topics are topics that touch on the lives of a lot of people, a lot of even faithful Catholics, Mm -hmm. this is getting a lot of attention and a lot of hullabaloo. And and it doesn't help that there are some cardinals and bishops at the Mm -hmm. Synod who are really upset at the topics that have been discussed. There are certain topics like communion for divorced and civilly remarried remarried Catholics and how to welcome 
homosexual people. There are certain cardinals and bishops who feel that those two topics really shouldn't even be discussed because we have established, we know what the truth is, the church teaches what it teaches on those topics. We should not discuss that. There is no disputing these these Mm -hmm. truths. So that's not helping because these those specific people who think we shouldn't be discussing these topics are going out there and talking to anyone who's holding a microphone in, in their face and they're not necessarily being the most charitable and they're also panicking over the fact that as they see it, we might um, capitulate on the truth. Now we have about a minute left. Would you say then that it's fair to say, and I I think so, I mean, I'm an ordained Mm -hmm. minister of the church, doctrine is probably not going to change, but is there a change in tone, in attitude, in even the fact that we're talking about these things? Is that a change? And is that, is that newsworthy? Well, I think so. I think you know more ordained ministers than I do and how many are often afraid to broach certain topics in certain company because of what the reaction Mm. might be. So the fact that you've got a room full, you've got about 200 odd bishops and cardinals and they're not afraid to discuss these topics openly. Mm -hmm. I think that is news because it's probably the first time such a discussion is happening on such a big scale. scale. So, yeah, and tone, you know what? That that goes a long way. What a big difference. I mean, my background is communication. So I know about the difference that using this word over that word can make. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, that's good. Um, We're going to be speaking with Sebastian Gomes, who is in Rome a little later, and he can give us kind of more details as to everything that's happening. But I wanted to clarify that with you because you're good at at getting rid of all the stuff that is irrelevant and focusing on the important cutting things. Cutting through the Vatican gobbledygook. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Alicia Ambrosio, cutting through. I like that. That should be your motto. <laughs> Alicia Ambrosio is our Salt and Light Hour news producer, and you can watch her on her show, Vatican Connections, every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Salt and Light Television and also on demand at saltandlighttv.org. And you can follow her on Twitter. You should, as she cuts through the gobbledygook <laughs> at Vati Connections. Hey, everybody. This is Luke Spihar. You're listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. I'm Deacon Pedro. Our website is saltandlighttv.org slash radio. And our Facebook page is facebook.com slash slradio1. And now it's time for... Saint of the Week with Andrew Santos. Andrew, welcome back Deacon to the Pedro, program. Deacon Pedro, how are you? I'm very good. So we have a, a Canadian saint or is she French? I never uh, know. No, no, she's, uh, she's French. She's from France, all right. All right. Um, so I'm happy to tell you about her. Actually, um, I had a little bit of a grammar lesson uh, looking okay. up Saint, uh, this particular saint, because I thought it was pronounced uh, Alacoque. Uh-huh. <laughs> Only to be pointed out that it's not Alacoque, Andrew, it's Alacoque. Yes, That's how you French. pronounce it in French. So if that kind of narrows it down for you, um, our saint for the coming week is Saint Margaret Mary Alacoque. Margaret Mary okay. Alacoque. Yes, tell us about Alacoque. her. Alacoque, there we go. <laughs> so we know that Margaret was born on July the 22nd, uh, which is interesting, just a few days before my birthday, at L'Hôtecourt in Burgundy, France. So um, when we look back at her life, we know that uh, she was sent to the Poor Claire School. That was at uh, the town of Chacol, mm-hmm. um when her father died. And her, we know that her father was a notary, uh, and he died when she was eight years old. So she was bedridden for five years with rheumatic fever, 
uh, rheumatic fever was running uh, rampant during that time mm-hmm. in history. And she had rheumatic fever until she was 15, and she early developed a devotion to the sacrament. We know that she refused marriage, and in 1671 she entered the Visitation Convent and was professed the next year. From the time she was 20, uh, we know that she experienced visions of Jesus Christ. And on December the 27th, 1673, just a few days after Christmas that year, she began a series of revelations that were to continue over the next year or so. Mm -hmm. And in these revelations, we know that Christ informed her that she was his chosen person, she was his chosen instrument, to spread devotion to his sacred heart. Mm -hmm. And in these um, kind of revelations, he instructed her um, in a devotion that was to become known as the Nine Fridays, what we know today as the Nine Fridays and the Holy Hour. Right. And he asked that the Feast of the Sacred Heart be established. Oh, okay. Very interesting, because I didn't know that St. Margaret Mary was behind this. And I was always curious about the history of the Sacred Heart, and yeah. now we know. Um, people laughed at her. Her superior rebuffed her. Um, and in her efforts to follow the instructions she had received in the visions, she eventually won the Mother Superior over, but was unable to convince a group of theologians about what had happened, and basically whether her apparition was true or not. And nor was she any more successful with uh, the other members of her community. Uh, we know that she received the support of Blessed Claude La Colombière, and mm-hmm. that was the confessor of the community at that time. And he, he saw what she was seeing. He declared that the visions were genuine. And in 1683, opposition in the community kind of ended when uh, Mother Milan, the superior, um, named Margaret Mary her assistant. Mm. So she later became novice mistress. She kind of worked her way up in the convent. She saw the convent, observed the Feast of the Sacred Heart privately. So they were one of the first communities to observe that privately, uh, starting in the year 1686. And two years later, a chapel was built there at the Paris Le Monial to honor the Sacred Heart. Okay. And, you know, it spread. It took off. Mm-hmm. It really did. It spread to other visitation convents. And unfortunately, Margaret Mary died on October the 17th and was canonized in 1920. Okay. So her, Blessed Claude Colombier, who I mentioned, and another saint, St. John Eudes, are called the Saints of the Sacred Heart. Okay. I didn't know that. No, so that's, I. you know, this is a learning opportunity for me um, and for our listeners at the same time. So the devotion was officially recognized and approved by the Church by Pope Clement VIII in 1765, which is 75 years um, after her death. Hmm. And her feast day is observed in the Universal Church on October the 17th. Yeah. Um, but her memorial, interestingly enough, in Canada is on October the 20th. Uh, okay. Interesting. So, like, it all depends on um, the yeah. local conference of bishops. Like, you, they usually set the memorial days for St. St. Blessed. Yes. So, here in Canada, here locally, it's the 20th of October. Interesting. So, Margaret so, Mary. Margaret Mary Alacoc. Sacred Heart. I did not know that. Thank you very much. Andrew Santos. Um, Andrew Santos is uh, the youth minister at St. Justin Martyr Parish in Unionville, Ontario, and he's also our saint expert. Hey everybody, it's Marie Miller, and you're listening to the Salt and Light Hour with Deacon Pedro. I'm Deacon Pedro. You can follow me on Twitter, at Deacon Pedro GM. As you know, bishops from every country in the world are meeting in Rome to speak about the family, Our correspondent, Sebastian Gomes, is there, and we spoke with him earlier this week. Sebastian, welcome back. Great to be here, Pedro. So, highlights of the week so far for you? 
Well, interestingly, there's not that much to report after Monday because all the Senate delegates are, are hanging out in their small language groups. They're working through this document that was published and caused uh, a big storm in the media and around yes. the world on Monday. Uh, but they're really plowing through that, trying to add some things, change some things, and they'll come together uh, again on Thursday for a general congregation to, to, to move forward from there. Um, but really, I mean, the, the highlights have been the conversations around the publication of that document. And, and yeah. we've heard now some clarification um, from some of the Synod Fathers about what they're focusing in on. So we're hearing that, you know, the importance of speaking in a language that people understand today, the, the art of accompaniment and encouragement, encouraging not only those in difficult situations, but those who are... Uh, trying their best in, you know, the traditional Catholic families uh, to encourage those people and support those people as well. So it's, uh, that's the kind of spirit um, uh, this week uh, that's coming out of the small group uh, sessions. Right. Other than the two big topics that all the secular media is talking about, uh, divorced and remarried Catholics and homosexuality, what other topics are part of this, uh, this uh, Relatio document? Yeah, a very important question. Um, you know, we've been trying to, to explain, those of us who have been inside the Senate, we've been explaining that these are people from all over the world, as you said in your intro. So they come with many different uh, yeah. issues. One of the big ones, for example, in Africa is polygamy. And so the, the African bishops have been saying, you know, what can our pastoral approach be to, for example, a polygamous family, a, you know, a man with three or four wives yeah. and many children, uh, who want to, who have, you know, have, have had a conversion experience and want to become part of the faith. What are we supposed to do with all those wives? You know, these are very practical questions that uh, the, the bishops, some bishops in parts of Africa have to deal with pastorally. So they're saying we need further conversation, we need further discussion at the local church level and also here at the universal church level for how to figure those, those things out. So... Uh, yeah, certainly the issues move uh, far beyond just the few that we hear about generally in the Western media. Yeah. Now, the working groups you told us last week are language groups. Have you or any of our team been, been, been able to sit in any of the working groups? Uh, we have not. I mean, uh, uh, the, the people doing us actually filming the interviews inside the Senate Hall, as we've been doing, right. we haven't been able to take part in the small language groups. But Father Tom uh, Rosica has been inside okay. uh, you know, for, with his role with the Holy See Press Office. Um, but the bishops that I've spoken to mm -hmm. after coming out of those meetings, uh, the, the, the consensus is that everybody is working extremely hard. There's a great desire and passion for this subject for the families, uh, and they, they, fee they feel the responsibility of really plowing through all this stuff and doing their best to get it right. But they say the atmosphere is very good, there's a lot of focus, um, and there's a, there's a great kind of um, um, unity. Um, there's many different perspectives, there's many different um, views, the there's theology, there's the pastoral, there's all these different things woven in together, but, but they all say it's all for the good, because it, it really enriches the whole process to have to have that communion as you're as you're moving along this very challenging process. Yeah. Now you you again told us last week the Holy Father was at every of the sessions last week. Would he be part or drop in on any of the working groups? 
Uh, he actually doesn't. He only attends the, the general congregations when everybody meets together. Okay. And uh, interestingly, on Wednesdays, he goes. He does his, his general audience right, in the mornings, so he wouldn't be present for those anyway. But he, he, yeah. uh, he is there for all the big sessions. So then the synod finishes on, you said there's a general congregation again on Friday or Thursday? Uh, Friday one, Friday? and also on uh, Saturday. Saturday is the conclusion of the, you know, the voting of the official documents, but it's actually not the end of the synod. The real end of the synod is the mass of celebration, the closing mass, uh, at which time uh, Pope Paul VI would right. be beatified, the Good. great pope who concluded the Second Vatican Council and inaugurated the Synod of Bishops, as we know it, this institution, the modern Synod of Bishops. So it's a, it's a wonderful end, fitting end, to these two weeks that have been so eventful and also so interesting, yeah. but very, um, very dynamic and, and uh, you know, forward-looking for the Church. So Paul VI, so I'm going to repeat that because I think most people probably didn't, you know, just did not grasp the importance. Paul VI was the Pope who started synods of bishops. That's what you said, right? Yes, exactly. There was a great desire after the Second Vatican Council to somehow keep alive, like to build some kind of structure that would, that would keep alive the spirit of collegiality, of walking together, of discerning together, um, of, 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 you know, getting through some of these major challenges that the modern world and the modern church present with us together. Yeah. All the bishops at the councils could testify to that. Um, and Paul VI answered that call by, by instituting the Synod of Bishops. And for the past 50 years, we've had, uh, th- this is the third extraordinary synod. We've also had uh-huh. 13 ordinary synods. So the yeah. ordinary synod next September, sorry, next October, uh, will be the 14th ordinary synod. Yeah, I, I think Paul VI, after having to to deal with, not the, in a bad way, but with the Second Vatican Council, he thought, no more councils, let's just have synods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly, that would have been a heck of a thing. No, he, he suffered a lot, but he, what a wonderful, wonderful man. And what's very interesting is, you know, amidst all the chaos uh, that we hear about going on now and the, and the back and forth of this synod, I've spoken to many people on, you know, with all these different perspectives, and they all have a very deep and profound respect and love for Paul VI. So a testimony to the great Holy Father that he was for 15 years here in Rome. Yes. Okay, very good. We're going to leave it there. Thank you, Sebastian. Um, once you come back to Toronto, I'm sure we'll, we'll connect. And, and, and the, all the fruits of the Synod will continue to, uh, to, to give us more fruit as we go through the year and prepare for the next Synod. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you, Deacon. Good to be with you. Sebastian Gomes is a producer for Salt and Light Television. He's the producer of the documentary The Francis Effect. And you can follow all our coverage of the Synod, including the Beatification Mass of Paul VI at saltandlighttv.org, our website. You can stream all our programming live. I spoke with Sebastian earlier this week. Coming up in our second half hour, Who the Hell is the Devil? And a featured chat with Tony Melendez. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Salt and Light Hour, Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. Now, I may be among the few people in the world who are actually interested in exorcisms and demonic possessions. The Church is very clear that there is such a thing as demonic possession. This is not just something of 2,000 years ago when Jesus would expel demons. But what does possession really mean, and what is an exorcism? 
To tell us more, I'm now joined by someone else who is interested in the topic and who has done a lot more research than me for his best-selling book, The Right, The Making of a Modern Exorcist, Matt Baglio. Matt, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So how did you become interested in this topic? You know, as a journalist, I was in Rome, and I'd heard about this course being taught at a Vatican-affiliated university, you know, that purported to train exorcists. Uh-huh. And so I was fascinated. I, I, I am a Catholic. I was raised Catholic, but I didn't know anything about exorcism. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't think that the Church really still promoted the concept of exorcism, and, and, and let, you know, let alone had a course. Yeah. So I went down there as a journalist trying to, you know, see what I could find. And, and at the course, I met an American priest right. who uh, was sent to Rome by his bishop to become an exorcist. And this was one of the uh, uh, things that he was asked to do, was to take this course. Right. Okay, well, so back up. You're not a priest, so anybody can just take the course? Well, yes, so <laughs> to speak. I mean, the, the course is not a... Uh, going to give you the tools to become an exorcist. According to the teachings of the Catholic Church, only a priest yes. nominated by his bishop has the right to be, to be an exorcist. So the course is more about teaching you the theology behind exorcism. Right. In fact, the priest that I followed, he had to then go out and apprentice to an exorcist. He had to find one right. and get hands-on training. So, so he's a real person. It's completely factual. I didn't make anything up. Really? Okay, that's good to know. I think a lot of people were under the impression that it might have been sort of the nonfiction fiction genre. Yeah, no, it's a, fi- it's a nonfiction book. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, you can Google all the people in there. A few, a few of the names have been changed. Most of the participants in the exorcisms, because I was able to, to uh, interview about six of them, people undergoing exorcisms, I had to change their names. But the exorcists themselves are real people. The film was, was slightly different. That right. was slightly fictionalized. Right, okay, yeah. Um, so in the course, did you learn the differences between demonic possession, demonic uh, torment, attacks, like those distinctions? Is that the kind of thing that was, was being taught in the course? Right, that would be one of the things that was taught in the course. One, another one was discernment, and that, that falls in line with how can you tell if a person is you know, suffering from what the Church considers to be a demonic possession. You know, I was, I was very fascinated about that. It's, it's a kind of a scientific approach. Most yeah. people, myself included, I was expecting a more fundamentalist approach, somebody who was going to tell me that all my problems were related to a demon. Instead, it's very different. These, these are very sophisticated, urbane individuals who are trying their hardest to work with modern science and exclude you know, any kind of rational explanation before they move on to the preternatural explanation, which would be then considered a spiritual in nature. Um, and there are, there are different levels and different ways that the Course talked about that an evil spirit can, you know, affect a person's life. Mm-hmm. And uh, leading up to, which would be, I guess, what most people, you know, the demonic possession, most people are... Uh, when they see a film like The Exorcist or The Rite, something yeah. like that, that's immediately what they associate with uh, with an exorcist. So can you quickly maybe give us a, a distinction? So a demonic possession as opposed to demonic attack? Well, yeah, there's, there's different. Uh, one would be an infestation, which is sort uh-huh. of a, a house, something like what people consider to be a haunted house. Right. Again, these aren't my, uh, my descriptions. These are what the Course was teaching. Yes students. Uh, another one was a, um, 
let's see, there's infestation, there's demonic possession, which is the top. Yeah. And uh, there are another one which is, I forget the, the term, but it's when a demon can affect a person's mind. And it's sort of, it's, I'm sorry, it's called oppression. Uh -huh. This is oppression. where a demon is able to supposedly influence a person's thoughts and give them a sense of uh, hopelessness, etc. that isn't necessarily related to, uh, you know, a demonic possession, which is when a demon is more involved in a person's life. And, and right. But it's, it's still a little bit different than I think people, when they watch a film, what they think of demonic possession is. I assume that, according to the church, demonic possession is, you know, the demon is living inside of a person, yeah. doing everything for the person. The person is pretty much innocent uh, for their actions. And, and, and I think a lot of people who criticize exorcism, that's the idea that they have in their mind. But right. it's not like that. Now, did you, did you, in your research or during the course, come, uh, come across the idea that someone needs to be open to evil? Like, it's not like the little girl walking down the street and some demon jumps out of the bushes to possess her. How, how does right. possession it's, it's happen? Participation on, on the part of the person who is in need of an exorcism. Yeah. In fact, it's really up to them, and that's what I found to be quite interesting about the whole process of exorcism. It's a prayer. It's a, it's the it's the exorcist yeah. helping the individual overcome what they're dealing with and bringing them back into connection with the church. I mean, the the sac an exorcism is a sacramental doesn't hold as much yeah. um, importance as a, as a sacrament. sacrament. So, you know, the church, the exorcists are there to help the person return to the church. And in that case, the person is responsible for their actions in both becoming liberated and in both becoming affected by this uh, the situation. So it isn't that you, like you just described, no, you're not going to be walking down the street and something's going to jump out yeah, at exactly. you. In fact, if you're in a room... Participating with an exorcist or helping an exorcist, you know, in an exorcism, you're not going to be. Uh, it's not going to come into you. Yeah. That's what exorcist told me. It's not a cold. You can't catch it. Yeah. And and there isn't something that's predisposed that, that makes you a victim of this kind of thing. It's it's more of a, of a process that that people undergo that takes them away from. God, so to speak. Yeah. Now, some of our listeners uh, might be familiar with the concept of deliverance, and maybe if they belong to a charismatic uh, group or something, you've been to healing masses, and there's prayers of deliverance. Would that be different from an exorcism in that the exorcism has to be for a person who's possessed, but a deliverance could be just someone who's, who's, who's uh, enslaved by a particular pattern of sin, but it might not necessarily be even a demonic oppression? Do you know the difference between deliverance, the prayer of deliverance? Of course, yes. I mean, the deliverance is sort of a watered-down version of an exorcism. Uh -huh. through the, if you're looking at this through the lens of the Catholic approach, yeah. a deliverance would be a prayer, of, a prayer, could be a prayer of liberation. And any priest can perform that. Yeah. A priest can perform a blessing. They can perform you know, the sacrament of the sick. They can, they, can, yeah. they can help an individual who they may think is, is undergoing a, um, a problem, uh, spiritual-related, that is... It doesn't have to be an exorcism. Right. An exorcism is a prescribed ritual of the Catholic Church. And in order to perform an exorcism, you know, you're following the ritual, you have to have permission from your bishop, yeah. and you have to follow the steps about how you discern whether or not the person is in need of an exorcism, and then how you go about performing the ritual. In other Christian denominations, they don't have this approach. They have their own prayers of uh, exorcism, which would be considered by a Catholic priest to be prayers of deliverance. So they're, they right. could be doing the same thing, yeah. 
but in a, from the Catholic mindset, the an, an exorcism is a ritual prescribed by the Church that only only a uh, approved priest can perform. Right. So you mentioned earlier about discernment, discernment of spirits. Some people might call it. So, uh, is there like a checklist that you can sort of how do you know the difference between real possession and and a mental health issue? For example, well, there can be. I mean, that's one of the things the course talked about was how you know how can we go about this. And the first thing is that you, these priests are told to be very cautious, and they're yeah. told to work with psychiatrists and psychologists, mm-hmm. um, and not jump to conclusions. So one of the things the ritual stipulates is that they do need to exclude all manner of natural explanation, and that that requires them to really work with mental health professionals mm-hmm. who do know more about that area than they do. Right. Other than that. It's not a it's not a uh, a magic formula. In fact, an exorcism can't be performed in such a way that it may be construed as being a magical ceremony. It's a prayer, uh-huh. and I talked to the exorcist. There are many different exorcists. Each exorcist is different. Obviously, every priest is different. Uh, they do have their own individual approaches. Some are you know more more salt of the earth. I can't explain the, uh, what God is doing. I just have to follow my gut. Other people are yeah. more academic, and, and they approach it differently. But usually it comes through experience. The first thing they do is they interview the person, and they ask questions, and they try to get to the bottom of why they're there. Um, a lot of people, I would say 90%, probably upwards of 95% of people who go to see an exorcist are immediately sent away uh-huh. by, by the exorcist. In other words, you know, they're not kicked out the kicked out of the door, but they're just you don't need an exorcism. Right. You know, they're they're obviously in a pastoral sense looked after. Yeah. But they're they're shown that their problems aren't beyond the you know a, a normal. Yeah. In the sense that it can be explained easily through science, etc. They may be sent to a mental health professional. Yeah, cetera. of course. Those so other five percent, then the exorcist will begin to try to look deeper into it. He will then screen them through a psychiatrist, etc. Um, and he may pray just blessings yeah. over them. You know, come for a mm-hmm. few weeks, let's do a blessing, and let's see what happens. It's, it's a slow process, and what the exorcist has to avoid doing is immediately telling this person that, oh, yeah, ah, yeah, that's right. a spiritual problem, and oh, I can see that your problems are caused by a demon, because it's, there's so much danger involved in, in fixing that in the person's mind um, that you know, they may never be able to overcome that. So you really have to be cautious and circumspect. And I was, I was actually quite surprised and pleasantly surprised to hear that the official exorcists of the church want this approach. Right, of course. Okay, wow, we could spend much, much more time talking about this, but I guess that's a good cue for, to let people know that they can still get the book. Um, so the book is called The Right the making of a modern exorcist, uh, Matt Baglio. You're also the co-author of the best-selling book that was turned into an Academy Award-winning film, Argo. So, so lots of uh, stuff on your website, mattbaglio.com. Thank you very much for speaking with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. As I said, Matt Baglio is the author of the best-selling book, The Right, The Making of a Modern Exorcist, published by Doubleday, and you can learn more about everything Matt is doing and his other books at his website mattbaglio.com here now is our featured artist of the week Tony Melendez with Never Be the Same from his album of the same name Day is like no other day before 
you and I will never be the same. I give you all my love this day and every day, forever and forever in our joys and in our pain. We become the sign of love our God has given us. We become the witness to We fill the day with love Today is like no other day before Even more You and I will never be the was our featured artist of the week, Tony Melendez, with Never Be the Same, from his album of the same name. Tony Melendez was born in Nicaragua, son of a woman who was given the drug thalidomide to help calm morning sickness, but caused him to be born without arms. His family then moved to the United States, where Tony grew up. Tony never saw himself as being different or disabled, and never let his lack of arms get in the way of anything. There's very little he cannot do. And I spoke with Tony earlier this week. Tony, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Hello. Uh, it's an honor to be with you. I'm excited. I Salt know. and Light again, being with you guys, is, to me, it's exciting. It's, it's good to have you back. Last time I saw you, we were in Brazil. So, and I know you're, you're, you're one of these World Youth Day pioneers. You've been to a lot of them, if not all of them. How, how was Brazil for you as World Youth Day? Uh, to me, it was exciting, uh, especially to see the new Pope, you know, um, just to kind of meet him a little more so. Um, I didn't get to, like, be up close and talk to him personally, but just to, you know, be closer to him, you know, there amongst the whole world youth day and uh, just to see how he just 
says to his people, okay, I want to walk. Um, yeah. And how he wants to be with the uh, with the youth, especially during that time. And just to see so many people gather, you know, it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Now, you're no stranger to, to popes. I'm going to... I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play something for you. Tony, you are you are truly a courageous young man. Courageous young man. You are giving hope to all of us. And my wish to you is to continue of giving this hope to all all the people. I'm sure you've heard that that clip thousands of times, and I'm sure every time you hear it, it, it probably sends shivers up your. How do you feel when you hear that? Twenty-seven years later. Yeah, uh, you know, you know I, I, that moment changed my life uh, you know, in in like seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, without without uh, Tony Melendez even realizing the impact. You know, that was 1987. Mm-hmm. Here we are, 2014 now. Yeah. Um, and that message of hope, those words that he uh, said to me, um, that kiss that was seen around the world, Yeah. Um, it, it, it has followed me, it has helped me, it has it is, it is challenged my faith um, in the sense of wanting to do more. Um, it, it's been even, uh, I'll even say, almost scary because I, you know, I, I don't feel like I could carry that kind of load, you know, to, right. to be a hope giver to, to the level of some people, um, what they're demanding or what they really need. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I really wish that, you know, I could put Jesus straight in their heart and say, here's the love you're looking for, you know? And I tried through song, I tried through words, I tried through, um, you know, sharing some of the scriptures uh, but that impact of that day was so strong um, that you know it, it, it's a mix. It's a mix of, of feelings. It's a mix of being thrown here. You do it. You're not going to be alone. Uh, God put me in places where uh, I don't know exactly what to do. Uh, so I'll, I'll I'll keep singing. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of the best way I I, I say it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And getting to meet, uh, getting to say that I um, was kissed by a saint. Yes, um, I felt even just honored. I mean, there's just no other word. Yes, uh, yes. I knew him. Per- I, I knew him uh, not personally from the moment uh, that that it's changed my life. Yeah. Now that was almost thirty years ago. At the time, did you think that you were going to be a, a, a musician? That that was going to be your career? Um. I was singing. I was singing during that time. Yeah, um, and I, I guess it was a dream of mine. You know, every singer kind of dreams one day maybe it takes off. Yeah, uh, and, and I would say it, it's taken off in a big way, um, and it hasn't kept me just in the church realm. Yeah, uh, I, I've, I've gone into corporate settings with the motivational speaking and a, and a gift of hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's putting me in secular situations or concerts or gatherings that, you know, it gives me just that little moment to maybe plant a seed right? Uh, of how, how love and, and how big Christ really is. I yeah. mean, it, to me, it's a, sometimes there's just no words. You know, I'm just grateful mm-hmm. 
then uh, I'm able to, you know, God could use a guy with no arms. Yeah. Use that moment. That's probably the best way to say it. Yeah. How do you, how do you manage those, if I can call it, I guess, secular situations? Do you really, because I, I, my sense is that what you do is ministry. So do you feel that you're not just giving a message of hope, but it's a very specific thing that our hope is in Jesus Christ? And how do you bridge that gap for people who are not Christian or when it's not a religious event? Just do goodness. Uh-huh. Some people really just have a goodness about them that, you know, maybe they don't go to church, maybe they don't, you know, share their faith, but there's a genuine goodness and um, that I sense or feel or uh, almost could see that is real. And, you know, to me, that's, that's only the presence of Christ. And, you know, maybe in some situations, some church, some churchgoers think they're so holy that they forget to be real. Mm. And, you know, they, they need to, you know, kind of uh, walk the talk, you know, really just live the way they're talking. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they can't just say it, they got to live it. Right. And, you know, some people are hard workers and, like I said, just have a genuine goodness about them. And that, that's where I really see the, the Christ in the person. Yeah. How much of what you do, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that in the last couple years, you've been doing a lot more touring, less recording, that what you do n- requires you to be present in person, that this is, you know, it's like Tony goes around and he meets people in person. It's not about listening, just listening to your music in my CD player or my MP3 player. Right. You know, I'm, I've never been a, a chart-hitting Catholic <laughs> celebrity or, yeah. you know, the, who really has a Catholic number one hit? I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, there might be a handful of people that, that do it, you know, and, and, you know, to the point where you recognize their music. Yeah. Um, but my my real call, I would say the real call, it's been through music, yes, uh, but it's been more the live concert or the, the live youth rally or... Yes. Um, the World Youth Day I've been to. Um, I, I can't even begin to tell you the countless uh, schools I've been to, yes. you know, from Catholic schools to private schools to Protestant schools. I mean, a mix, a mix of religions, but just young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the, the uh, you know, like, again, I, I'm not a record charting, nothing. You know, the, the closest I came to, be, to even feeling like, oh, uh, I, you know, I got maybe close to a number one hit is they invited me to be the, at the Latin Billboard Awards. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the year that the Pope died, you know, yeah. 2005. Yeah. And uh, they they wanted me to dedicate a moment. Uh, and some of the top Latino singers were there, you know, just to name a few um, for maybe some of your audience that, that knows and speak Spanish. Yeah. Um, there were Thalia, Daddy Janky, Juanes, uh-huh. uh, Jennifer Lopez, Ma- Mark Anthony. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the top of 2005 were there. Yes. And I was asked to sing uh, a song dedicated to Pope John Paul II. Mm-hmm. And I was in the studio at the time recording, and I stopped everything, and I wrote a song with the, the producer and the, the sound engineer, between the three of us, we wrote a song called Juan Pablo Hernandez, John Paul the Great. Uh-huh. And, you know, I would say that was probably Tony Melendez's biggest 
hit that you know never made it to number one or yeah. anything like that. But I, I could say I sang at the billboards. <laughs> yeah, you did. Wow. Um, again, you've been touring a lot. Two weeks ago or a week ago, you were in Calgary. I know you're home now, but you leave again at the end of the week. And next week, uh, you're going to be in Toronto, actually, with me. Um, so uh, yeah. what uh, what else is uh, uh, new for you uh, other than, the, I mean, any exciting places you're going to, touring, you're doing the cross-country tour, um, uh, any new recordings coming down the pipes for you? What's new? Yeah, right now I don't have any studio uh, projects that I'm, you know, in the middle of. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I, I would love to do a Divine Mercy, oh, a yeah. sung one, um, and, and put that on uh, onto a recording. It's just a prayer that I just really love. Yeah, um, I've always talked about doing a, an album of just prayers. You know, try to leave the prayer as is and just put it to music. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, in in the future, that's kind of a little dreams I would like to make real. Um, I did write a mass, but it, I didn't. It's not, you know, available to put a the market. Yeah. Uh, and I made a mass, you know, just for, actually it was my way of being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, instead of a, learning a whole new mass from someone else, I said, <laughs> you wrote your I'm own. just going to write one. I'm going <laughs> to write one and put it in a key that I could sing it in. Right. Right. So, I was being lazy. I was uh, and working it at the same time. So, so you're still you're still singing. I, I have a, Are you still singing in your <laughs> your you're still singing in your parish then? You know, I cannot honestly be at my parish every week. I am right. gone fifteen to twenty days a month. Yeah. So occasionally, um, when they don't have anybody and I'm home that weekend, yeah, I could help them out. But it's very rare. You know, maybe four times a year. You know, at my own parish. But throughout my travels at youth rallies, um, yeah. they might not have a choir. Uh, that may be a conference, or they ask us to to play for for the mass. You know, my, uh, myself and you know my right. band. Right. So, so we'll lead the liturgy music. Right. Okay, Tony. We're gonna leave it there, but uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing you next week. And. Uh Uh, and yeah, keep doing what you're doing. You are doing exactly what St. John Paul II uh, said you do, and, and so I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so keep at it. Okay. That was a conversation I had with Tony Melendez earlier this week. If you are in the Toronto area, Tony will be playing a concert on October 24th. Details at TonyMelendezToronto.com. If you'd like to go and you're in Toronto, send me a tweet at Deacon Pedro GM and we'll get you two free tickets. So just send me a tweet at Deacon Pedro GM for two free tickets for Tony Melendez in Toronto, October 24th. Tony will also be playing concerts in Belleville, Ontario and in Mason, Ohio in the coming weeks. You can get more details at Tony's website, TonyMelendez.com. Here now is Tony Melendez with Take My Hand from his album, Take My Hand. Nails in the 
Jesus knew Listening to Tony Melendez with Take My Hand from his album of the same name. And that will bring us to the end of our program this week. Remember that you can get a 20% discount off the Great Parish Study Program, The Church Alive. Just go to our store, saltalighttv.org, and use the discount code ALIVE20. ALIVE20. If you forget, just send me a tweet at Deacon Pedro GM, and I'll send you a discount code also. If you are in the Toronto area and you want two free tickets to see Tony Melendez, the first person to send me a tweet at Deacon Pedro GM gets the tickets. Next week, we'll be speaking with Deacon James Keating about how husbands and wives can pray together. And we'll meet singer-songwriter Simonetta. So don't miss it. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this has been the Salt and Light Hour. Yeah. <laughs>